Morning, guys. Good to see you this morning. Turn to Acts 23, and you know, we're, we're coming to these uh, places in Acts where, you know, if you're doing your daily devotions through Acts, you might just kind of slide through these, honestly, because it's kind of hard to figure out what difference it makes to us. But I think we're finding out in our study of Acts that when we slow down and really look at what's in that text and why it seems uh, clearly that Luke put it there, uh, we're finding that it has great relevance for us. Paul went around Asia and Europe proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching the Old Testament from a Christian perspective, which is the true Old Testament perspective. In other words, Paul was trying to show everybody, especially those in the synagogues, that the Bible they had been studying for so many years they hadn't understood because that Bible points to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and then how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of everything uh, promised in the Old Testament. So he rigorously taught. He proclaimed and taught everywhere he went. And we've found that any time you proclaim and teach, you must also be prepared to defend because there are going to be challenges that come to your presentation, challenges that come to your claims. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, then this is what we should all be doing about it. And uh, there will be many uh, counter uh, claims and charges that come against you, and you need to be prepared to defend the faith. A lot of the times the reason that we're not really standing up as we ought, not making the decisions that we ought, not taking the opportunities to speak a word for Christ that we ought, is because down deep inside we know these, uh, these, uh, uh, this hostility is going to come, and therefore we seek to avoid it. And what Luke is showing us that Paul faced the same thing. Don't be surprised. Don't be disappointed. You should be facing something of the same thing. Uh, Obviously, in a country like ours, thank God, uh, we're protected from some of the worst uh, violence and hostility that can come to a believer. But we should expect the same human response from unbelievers around us and other religions that are around us. Uh, because Paul faced it. We also, as we look at Paul, we see how God's at work during those times. And we also see how Paul responds uh, to the hostility that comes to him. So all these lessons are extremely important for us when we're engaged in the mission. If it's irrelevant to us, it's probably irrelevant because we haven't moved along the same lines of the mission that the Apostle Paul was moving. Let's look at uh, chapter 23. We'll read, first of all, verses 12 through 35. And uh, what I want us to see this morning is that uh, as we engage the mission of Jesus Christ and face some of the difficulties that come with that, that we can trust God with our very lives. And we can trust Him to enable us in those trials. You can lean on Him and expect Him to take up your cause for you because it's His cause. You can expect Him to equip your mind you know, we, we all feel deficient uh, in defending the faith. There are lots of smart people, people smarter than we are around us. We all feel threatened by that. And what, what this shows us, Paul, Paul shows us uh, in Acts that God will take up your cause. He'll enable you to uh, think and to speak for him. And we're also going to see how God redeems the time. Uh, when you feel like because of your gospel ministry or the things that come to you that these distractions come and, and you end up uh, wondering about how you're going to use your time and feel like maybe you're wasting your time. 
We're going to see marvelously here how God redeems the time for us. So those three concerns, our lives, the use of our minds, and the use of our time, uh, we'll see especially in this third defense of the faith by the Apostle Paul. Remember, there are five great defenses. We've already seen two of them, and now we begin with uh, Felix today. Well, let's look and see what happens. Remember that Paul is in uh, Jerusalem. He has been falsely accused by some Jews in the temple. There was a mob scene, and Lysias, the commander, takes charge and brings Paul into protective custody, takes him to the Sanhedrin to find out what the charges are all about, and the Sanhedrin goes nuts on him too and begins to act like a mob. Of course, Paul uh, very uh, shrewdly uh, provokes the controversy in the Sanhedrin by claiming that the controversy here was about the resurrection of the dead. Well, of course, the Sanhedrin doesn't believe it, and the Pharisees do, so they're warring each other. And Lysias has to deliver Paul again from being torn apart now by the Sanhedrin. Uh, So now he's in custody, and we'll see what happens. Beginning with verse 12, chapter 23. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him into the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to His Excellency the Governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with, uh, came upon uh, them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for, for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. 
So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. What we want to learn in this first section that we're studying this morning is that when you defend the faith, God will defend your life. When you defend the faith, God will defend your life. You'd say, well, what about the martyrs? Looks like we have a lot of dead people who are defending the faith. Just wait. Uh, You'll see them come back to life. Remember, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. God will protect and defend your life. He cherishes your life. And yes, you may be killed in this life. We believe in the resurrection. So we serve knowing that we will be infinitely rewarded for the least little thing that we do. And you can trust him with your life. And oftentimes in this life, as in the case with the Apostle Paul, you can clearly see the hand of God in protecting the life of his servant. Our lives will not be over until God decides they're over. You may as well go ahead and spend your life because your days are already numbered. And it's simply a question of whether you're going to enjoy obeying the Lord between now and then. Now, first of all, there are two main things we want to notice. First of all, God will defend our lives, no thanks to the religious community. Notice it is the religious community who are plotting. And not only are these 40 men, by the way, I wonder about those 40 men. They must have been really hungry for a long time after this was over. (laughs) Those 40 men were plotting to kill Paul. And they go to the Sanhedrin and get the cooperation of the Sanhedrin, presumably the high priest himself the Pope of this religion. And he agrees to invite Paul to come back for another cross-exam, knowing that Paul will never make it because these 40 men will kill him. This is murderous religious terrorism. And it happens. And people in the name of God, in the name of religion, are killing each other. And if you look around the world, just look at the 20th century And so many of the wars, whether it's Northern Ireland or the Balkans or the Middle East, much of that is just religious wars. People in the name of religion are sanctioning the abridgment of other people's rights, including the right to life. It's amazing what people will do with their religious zeal, which ought to tell us something about religious zeal. Watch out. All the enthusiasm you may claim that you have for your religious position may not be good, true, nor godly. It might just be a matter of your flesh that is attached to your religious preferences. And where you see it happening, of course, in our instance, is in a campaign year. Just get ready. Uh, You're going to have evangelical Christians, and you're going to have people who have other religious persuasions in the name of their religion, promoting this candidate and that candidate and this political position and that political position, where all the time the real motives have to do with what they perceive to be in their best economic interest primarily or some other thing uh, that causes them to associate with some position or another. 
uh, I have a friend who said, anytime someone comes up to me that I don't know and introduces himself as a Christian businessman, I button my back pocket and get out of there as fast as I can. <clears throat> People who are using their religion to promote their own interests. So this is exactly what's happening here in a very murderous way. And I'm sure that some of you who have been involved in ministry of one type or another in this community have found yourselves very disappointed at times by people in the religious community. You found yourselves betrayed sometimes by people in your own religious group. This was Paul's old religious group. He used to work with these guys. He, he went out and, and uh, arrested Christians on their behalf. And now they're turning on him and betraying him and telling lies about it. Well, I have been involved in ministry for a few decades. And of course, I've experienced all of these things from Christians who will sometimes tell mistruths about you or lie about you in the name of religion because they don't like something about what you're doing. It's amazing. We're all capable of it. We're all capable of it. And so if you're going to serve the Lord uh, and you're only going to serve as long as the Christian community and others in the interfaith community are going to support you and give you kudos and be real happy with everything you're doing, just don't even bother. Uh, You're going to get out there and stall out anyway. You have to go into it with your devotion to the Lord and realizing that you have an audience of one that you're seeking to please. And he's the one you should seek to please. So Paul faced it, faced murderous religious terrorism from a group that claimed to be devoted to the Bible. Okay, no thanks to them, but thanks to God's providence, B. Look at verses 16 through 35. And you see how God is at work. It's amazing how he's at work. Now, we shouldn't be too surprised because we have... Uh, in this class and years past looked at how God has used all kinds of things in the Old Testament. Uh, We saw how he uses the the wicked Babylonians to discipline his own people. How he uses uh, Cyrus the Persian who's who's called God's anointed to bring God's people back to Israel. So God will use anybody, anything in order to promote his interest with his people, and he does it here. First of all, through obscure connections in verses 16 through 22. Why do I say that? Well, because this is the only mention in Luke uh, that Luke has anywhere about any relatives of Paul. We know nothing about these people. Who are these people? Where'd they come from? Well, presumably, the reason we never heard about them is that when Paul says he gave up all things for the gospel, it seems he gave up his family for the gospel. It seems that way. Gave up all things. So presumably the reason we never heard of them is they weren't believers. Presumably they were so resentful toward Paul, he was excommunicated out of the family. So we, we, that's, that's just a scholarly, uh, 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 guess, speculation. But here in Judaism, uh, life, the protection of human life is supreme over all things. And no matter what religious affections they have. Here you see the family loyalty coming out. And when Paul's life is being threatened, well, the nephew comes and lets Paul know about it. Look how God uses even a strange family to defend our lives. Something really unusual. But then not only that, but when you look at verses 23 through 35, where he 
where he called, where list is called to the centurions, where you, where God is protecting us by his providence through CYD authorities. You say, what are CYD authorities? Cover your derriere. That's what CYD is. <laughs> Listen, it's just covering his rear end. Paul had let him know that he was a Roman citizen. If a Roman citizen's life is threatened or certainly is abused unjustly, then the one who allowed that to happen, in this case, the, the commander, the tribune, his life would be in danger. So that's the reason he's so terrified when Paul says, would you do this to the Roman citizen? Wow, everything immediately changes because their lives are in danger now. So here is Claudius Lysias covering his nice little fanny, and the Lord uses that. The Lord uses selfish motivations to bring some protection to his own people. So you don't know what he's going to use. You don't have to know. And you'd be silly to try to engineer it because God has an infinite number of options. You only can think of a few. So why would you try to engineer it? Let God engineer it. Uh, he has you on his heart. And you'll see here that he sends what we believe is about half of his entire garrison that was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had one cohort. And it appears as though Claudius Lysias sends half of a cohort to go with this little preacher, evangelist, to protect him. And the reason was there seemed to be a very significant plot by these Jewish folks. And Lysias did not want Paul uh, to be harmed so that he wouldn't be harmed. And God is using that. And notice that he says in his letter uh, to Felix, if you'll uh, look uh, in, in verse 28. Uh, well, first of all, let's, let's look and see how, look at some of this CYD behavior. Uh, this man, verse 27, he says to, to Felix, was seized by the Jews and was about to be called by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and, look at the word, rescued him. Thank you, Mr. Lysias. And then having learned that he was a Roman citizen. Now, a little subtle little twist of history there, isn't it? And Luke is saying, this is what went into the history books. But back up a chapter and let me tell you what actually happened. Yeah, Claudius Lysias uh, rescued Paul so he could find out what was going on. And then he was going to torture the prisoner to extract information from him. Sound familiar? Uh, that's what Lysias was going to do until he found out that he was a Roman citizen. But no, Lysias puts a little, just a little twist on the tenses of the verbs. Leaves a very different impression. Having discovered, I rescued him having discovered that he was a Roman citizen. So that the impression, of course, is, oh, I heard a Roman citizen was in danger, Mr. Excellent Felix. And so I dove into the situation to rescue a Roman citizen. Nice try. Uh, Luke caught him red-handed in his CYD behavior. And yet, uh, it's a person like that, a person like that, who just has his own career and his own hide as an interest in life, and God will use him when he wants to use him to protect you. So he then says to him something very important to Luke, and you'll find this three times in Acts at least, where he says in verse 29, 
uh, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. That's almost like a refrain in Acts. So that the what's happening is Luke's making it clear that Paul was innocent of any civil transgression. And you can trust the Lord with your reputation. You can trust the Lord with your record. You can trust the Lord with your guilt or innocence. As a matter of fact, when you trust in Jesus Christ, Christ's complete innocence becomes your innocence. But beyond even that, when you've not broken the law or you've not violated someone's rights or you've loved somebody and they're going to accuse you of the opposite, you can just leave it with the Lord. His record is the record that matters. It's this record, his word that matters. Then notice that they presented Paul before him. And on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And he says he was from Cilicia. And this, of course, is of interest because uh, Felix only had a certain uh, realm to govern. He wanted to be sure that he was governing properly and that this man, Paul, was from one of his areas. And he was, in fact, ruler over Cilicia as well. So the case was properly before him. All right, here's what we see. When you defend the faith, God will defend your life. He's got all of history in control. He has not only the church under his control, over which he is the head, the saving head, but he has the world under his control. The whole world is in his hands, and he can use anything that he wants to, good or evil, to protect you, his people, and he will. Now, secondly, let's look at chapter 24, and we'll look at verses 1 through 21 uh, to begin with. And here we're going to see that when you defend the faith, God will enable your mind. When you defend the faith, God will enable your mind. He will help you to think. He'll help you to speak. He'll give you wisdom. And you just need to cast yourself on His mercy and ask Him for wisdom. James says we don't have wisdom because we don't ask. And oftentimes you get into a problem and you start working that problem, trying to figure it out and come up with a solution. And then about three hours later, you realize you hadn't even said a word to the Lord in prayer. Just ask him at the very beginning. You'll save yourself a whole lot of time. Ask him and he will enable your mind. Let's look at the text, chapter 24, verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you 
what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But to some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Right, let's pause here. When you defend the faith, God will enable your mind. First of all, he'll do it against all odds. Against all odds. You'll be in a situation where you don't think that you're able at all to handle it and to stand up for the gospel and to represent Jesus Christ. And he will do it against all odds. What are the odds here? Well, here's the way John Stott put it if you, if you read his commentary. He says, The chances for the Apostle Paul in this situation were the same chances of a butterfly facing a steamroller. That's about the chance that Paul had. Now, let me tell you why. Felix, who reigned in Caesarea over the entire Palestinian area from 52 A.D. to 59 A.D., was one of the most wicked and vicious and violent rulers the Jews had ever seen. Anytime there was any sort of an uprising by the Jews, his strategy was singular. Wipe them out. And he crucified many, many Jews because they had simply caused political trouble. So if there was one guy in the land you never messed with, it was this man, Felix. Felix was born a slave in Caesar's household. He got his freedom and used connections from his brother and other people to begin to marry in to the emperor's family. And as a matter of fact, uh, Drusilla, his wife, was a Jewess. Drusilla was a beautiful woman. She was married to another man. Felix wanted her. And so he conspired to take her away from another man. This is how he got her. Felix himself was married three times. His first marriage was uh, to someone in the imperial, ho- imperial household. He was a social climber. And as Tacitus, uh, the great historian, says, he ruled viciously and violently. With a, he, ruled like a king, he ruled as a king, but ruled like a slave. He was a very violent man. So Felix was not a person that you wanted to appear, appear before with the rulers of an entire nation saying that you were a troublemaker. Paul had virtually zero chance. Now, who is it that's going to testify against Paul? Well, let's just bring the head of the Supreme Court, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. Let's let him argue the case. Well, he comes to be a witness, and he hires the best lawyer that he can find, a man named Turles, who obviously had a Greek and Roman connection. He clearly was a Roman citizen, and he had access to the bar. He could argue a case like a solicitor general, and he comes as probably the most talented prosecutor in all of Jerusalem 
who is probably both Jewish and Roman citizen, and he's coming under the aegis of the head of the Supreme Court or the Sanhedrin. That's what Paul's facing. You ever had a situation that bad? I never have. I've had some situations I thought were bad, but not that bad. This is bad. So Paul was against all odds. If you're ever going to stammer, stutter, freeze up, be paralyzed, this will be the time to do it, gentlemen. You have every excuse in the world. If there were ever a time when your sphincter muscles would get really tight <laughs> and you couldn't even walk, this will be the moment. So let's look first of all, and you'll see against all odds, because here we have the chief priest in verse 1a. After five days, the high, high priest Ananias comes down in all of his, his royal robes as well. And so Paul is facing everybody dressed in their regalia, all their proper robes, including the chief priest. Secondly, notice in verse 1b, we have trained theologians. He came with some elders. So Paul's going to argue his case theologically. Well, he's going to have plenty of trained people who've studied the Bible for years who are going to oppose him on every point. Is Paul against the entire Jewish clergy? Is Paul against the top university and their faculty? Is Paul against the Supreme Court? Thirdly, they got themselves a fancy lawyer. We've already talked about him. In verses 1c through 2a, Tertullus is obviously a very powerful man, and we'll see something of his power here when you look in 2b through 4. Look at this flattery. Now, remember what I just told you about Felix. Remember what I just told you about how the Romans thought, I mean, how the Jews thought about Felix. Now, look at these words. Since through you we enjoy much peace. What in the heck is he talking about? That's just sheer flattery. It's a total lie. The last thing they experienced was peace. And here's this man who's just, it's just so clearly manipulative. And only a man as wicked as Felix would allow him to say it without laughing. Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms, reforms are being made for this nation. Yeah, here's a reform. Let's crucify anybody who disagrees with you. This guy's a Stalin. He's a Stalin. So Stalin, dear Stalin, we thank you for your many reforms you brought to this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. You big fat liar. And then look what he does. He uses the preacher's technique. But to detain you no further, or preacher language, my last point would be, <laughs> with this I close. That's what he's saying, just to try to keep the attention of Felix, who was a very carnal man and probably was noticing any good-looking women that happened to be there in the assembly, to detain you no further, not to impose upon your precious time. Most excellent Felix, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. Ugh. This is what Paul's facing. You just, you really do just want to throw up. And he's just surrounded by injustices and wickedness. He doesn't seem to have a chance. Now, notice secondly, there's deception. 
Look at Tertullus's case in verses 5 through 8. And here's the deception. Paul is a plague. Now just think about this for a moment. Paul knows that he's got the saving message that delivers people from the plague of sin. And it's the only message. It's the only remedy for human sin. It's the only way for anybody to be forgiven. It's the only way for anybody to get to heaven and to experience health and shalom. And here's this man, this lawyer, hired and paid for with tithes and offerings, who is standing up and calling Paul the plague. And if you read the New Atheist, that's exactly what they're saying. These Christians who claim to have the answer, they are the plague of the earth. So what you see here in chapter 24 is exactly the way the human flesh responds to the message of the gospel. They don't bow down and say, thank you for bringing us the glorious gospel, liberating us from our sins. No, they say, you're the plague of all the earth. Those in power do often. So he calls them the plague. Why? Well, look at the charges. He stirs up riots. (laughs) Paul was in the temple worshiping. You know who stirred up a riot? The Asian Jew who said that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, which he hadn't done. But Paul is going to be accused of it. Now, there's a sense in which you could say Paul was in some ways the catalyst for a riot. I suppose. Uh, But to say that he's the one who stirs up riots is a total lie. And he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That one they got right. He's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and so are you. So if they want to accuse you of being a ringleader of a sect of the Nazarene, of a sect of Jesus Christ, let them, let them charge you with that and be happy about it. Say, thank you, Jesus. These people at least know I'm a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarene. Then thirdly, they say, he tried to profane the temple, which was the last thing the apostle was doing. The apostle loved to worship at the temple, and he paid the offerings for other people to give their vows, make their vows, and worship at the temple. He was devoted to true religion and true worship. So you can see that flattery and deception will normally be the tools that are used against God's people, and especially if you're walking faithfully with him, what else could they accuse you of except something that's a lie? And just be sure that when you get accused and you get, uh, you get blamed, that it is slander, that it's something that's not true. And that's the case with the Apostle Paul. And then notice, thirdly, not only flattery and deception, but collaboration. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. That's amazing. I've seen this happen many times. People will make false charges and then other people who want your viewpoints destroyed or your efforts destroyed, they'll just go along like mobs lie. They just lie. And you you shouldn't find yourself to be overly shocked when it happens. You should be, of course, dismayed. It's immoral. But that's what mobs do. And you'll find collaboration. And these Jews, these are no... These are people, not just people off the street. These are Jews with office. They, they too, are on the Sanhedrin. They have responsibility to tell the truth. And they're just piling on to accomplish their political ends. So you can see that political mobs are really not the right place for us to do our best work. Now, notice then, we've said that 
God will enable us in the midst of all that against all the odds. But also, he'll enable us with truth and grace. This is verses 10 through 21. This is what I've labeled, labeled B here. As we look at how God enables our mind, it's against all odds, but it's, he enables us with truth and grace. So our weapons are not to strike back with the same, the same methodology. And so often when you're hit with lies and deception and slander, you're very tempted to strike back out of vengeance and do the same thing to them that they did to you because you're thinking they deserve it. And if I don't make these counter charges or say something about them or spin the truth like they've spun it, then the jury will believe him instead of me. And once you get into that, you, you are no longer defending the faith, you're defending yourself. And you've taken the role of God right out of his hand. And we've already seen that he has an interest in defending your life. And he can use remote people and he can use unjust people who are only interested in CYD and he can use anything he wants to, but you've decided you're going to do it your way and you're going to use their methods to counterattack them instead of trusting in the Lord. Paul's method was trust the Lord with your life. You only have one duty to demonstrate Christ and to speak for him to your death. That's your duty. Your duty is not to defend yourself. Your duty is not to get a fair trial. Your duty is to be a man of the kingdom. Paul says, I consider my life worth nothing to me if I can simply complete the task of testifying to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. And Luke is showing it to us. Gentlemen, this is the way we behave. And we're willing to lose everything before we would lose our trust and our testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here you go with truth and grace. First of all, notice what Paul does. He does give proper respect. And you want to throw up when you're listening to Turtles give his flattering words that he doesn't believe and nobody else believes to Felix in order to manipulate him. And in reaction, you want to just say, hey, Felix. No, Paul doesn't do that. He says, knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation. That's not flattery. That's just the truth. He doesn't say anything that's untrue. Now, if he has something positive to say to a ruler, he'll say it. If he doesn't have anything positive to say, you notice how carefully he chooses his words. He's not going to flatter, but he's not going to be disrespectful. Notice how carefully Paul chooses his words here. He thought about this. I can assure you that while Turtles was giving his speech, Paul was thinking, what am I going to say? I could never compare the positive words Turtles has said to any words I could honestly say. What in the world can I say? There's not much to say to a man like that. He's very wicked, very vicious, and very destructive. So you just say, you've been the judge for a long time. It's kind of like saying, well, there's a point. You You make no judgment at all. Someone gives you their opinion. Now, there's an opinion. Paul says, there's a judge. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. And Paul doesn't say whether he's cheerful about Felix or cheerful about himself, but he's just saying, I'm cheerfully here because I'm before the ruler of the nation. And that's all he needs to say. That's all he can say to a wicked man. But he shows proper respect. When we get to his appearance uh, before uh, Herod Agrippa II, you'll see some exquisite courtly behavior by the Apostle Paul in 
giving respect. And when you go to court, if you're a lawyer, you know you should be giving respect. You have to give respect in order to have access to the bar. But you should give respect. It's not just what it takes to have access to the bar or to manipulate the judge. You ought to be giving respect because you recognize that God has ordained all authorities. And the respect you're giving is the, res- the honor you actually want to give to the Lord himself. These are his agents, wicked though they sometimes are. And you show proper respect. Watch out for yourselves, brother. Then with logical force, he says to him, you can verify these things. So Paul's not going to say anything that cannot be proven, which was, of course, a principle of law. Why would you state any opinion in making a case in law if you can't prove it? Because all that a proper jurist should consider is what you can prove. There may be some true things, but if you can't prove them, they're not helpfully admitted in court. What you want to admit before the court is what you can prove. And Paul is simply saying, I'm going to say some things that you can verify. So, Your Honor, this will not be, this will not be rocket science. I'm going to make some statements, and you can verify them with witnesses. That's what he's saying. So the Lord gave him the presence of mind to realize he doesn't need to go down these rabbit trails, things that can't be proven, false charges that were made. Let's just stick with what's proven. And and God gave him a clear focus. And here's why, gentlemen. Paul had already entrusted his life to the Lord. He had already died to himself. There was nothing to defend. There was nothing to be nervous about. He'd already died. Felix couldn't do anything to Paul that Paul hadn't already done to himself. Paul had already killed himself and all of his selfish interests. So if you take my life, you just get me home sooner. It'll be a lot easier when I get to paradise. Paul had already died. So God then could give him presence of mind to focus on the task ahead. So he uses logical force. And Paul denies treason and he denies heresy. And he simply says, I'm loyal to both Rome and Jerusalem. That's basically his argument. He denies that he's been treasonous or seditious. And he says, I'm loyal both to to Jerusalem and Rome. And that's a point that Luke's making. Christians are not disloyal to the church nor disloyal to the state. And we we should be able to verify that. Those are the lives that we're living. And that has been the heritage of Christians throughout. Thirdly, notice that Paul comes forth with gospel content. And I want us to look at this for a moment because, boy, is this significant. And we see that from the results in just a moment from Felix himself. But Paul gives gospel content. First of all, look at verse 14, 15. This is where it is. I confess to you. Here's his confession. That according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers. So Paul says, I am worshiping the God of the Bible. I'm worshiping the God of the church. He's identifying with the people of God. That's the first thing. I'm not some strange outsider. I'm an insider. I belong to God's people. The second thing that he does is he adheres to the Bible. Look at verse 14. He says, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So he says, I'm just representing what the Bible teaches. And he says it before all of these theologians, all of these scholars. He can say, my conscience is bound to the word of God. Not to the rabbinical traditions, not to the things that were added later, 
but to what the prophets and Moses had to say. And gentlemen, just get your life rooted on what the prophets and Moses and Christ and the apostles had to say. There you have it. That was Paul's testimony. I'm a, I'm a member of the people of God and I believe in the Bible. Then thirdly, he is professing the resurrection. And he's basically making the point that this is what the dispute is over. It's not over political sedition. Turtles would want to make you think I'm one of those Jewish zealots who are trying to overthrow the Roman government. That is not the case. I'm a member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe in the Bible. And the dispute here is about the resurrection. Because I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust, of the righteous and the wicked. Gentlemen, the resurrection, the bodily resurrection is not just for believers. Unfortunately, for unbelievers, there's there'd be a bodily resurrection for them too. And if you ever want to see kind of how this works out, just go to the uh, Sistina Capella, the, the Sistine Chapel. And there you'll see the big mural on the, on the wall behind the altar. And you'll see the righteous going up to be with the Lord and the wicked going down into the lower realms. It's an awesome display artistically of the last day. So we all get our bodies back to receive back the judgment for deeds done in the body. You say, well, my stars, I'm going to be judged for all the deeds done in my body. No, the deeds in your body were already judged at Calvary. And that's the reason that you have physical pleasures to look forward to. Not the 70 virgins. Those poor 70 women. Just think about that for a moment, you know. But, but we have pleasures that are beyond anything we've, we've ever known here. Physical, emotional, social, spiritual, especially pleasures waiting for us. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ has done in our place. Therefore, in our bodily resurrection, we're glorified like Christ. But there are others who are judged because of the deeds done in their body. They are actually judged for what they did. And they will inevitably in, and universally be judged to eternal perdition. Paul's preaching that in front of Felix and in front of Drusilla. These people who've done wicked deeds and not put their trust in the Messiah at all. I mean, Paul is one bold evangelist. He is a man who has clearly already died because he should expect, humanly speaking, after a sermon like that, his, not only his days are numbered, his moments are numbered. He should expect that just as Jesus, Jesus Christ was whipped by Pilate's men and dragged out to Calvary, Paul should have every expectation that's what's going to happen to him. But he refused to compromise the message of the truth because he wanted to live. The point, gentlemen, is not your survival. The point is you're honoring and glorifying Jesus Christ with your body right now because you know your body's coming back. And you just soon die now as later. And when you're following Christ, if you're going to face the challenges that come, the only way you can do it is to die now to all those things you long for. Well, so we see God in His, in His enabling power enables us to speak truth and grace. So with proper respect, with logical force, with gospel content, and with a clear conscience. Number four, verses 16 through 21. Here he says it again. We looked at this issue of conscience last time. Paul says it again right here. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. So I, 
I'm first of all speaking in the presence of God and therefore you will hear truth and grace from me. Secondly, I'm going to love my neighbor and I'm not going to manipulate him or deceive him or slander him even if he slanders me. Now there's the testimony of a Christian man with a clear conscience. And when I violate what is truth, like speaking unkindly to the high priest like he did 12 days before, I'm going to confess my sins. And therefore I have a clean, clean conscience. And that's the way we do it. That's the reason we confess our sins. Because we want to have a clear conscience. We want to acknowledge that the only one who's perfect is Christ himself. We're not perfect. We're his servants. And that's how we maintain a clear conscience. Now there's what God enables his sons to do when they take up the cross and follow him and engage the Christian ministry. Now, thirdly, look at verses 22 through 27. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Look at that. Heard him speak about Christ. (laughs) And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. He better be. And said... Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. Talk about wickedness. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Look at that. Paul was left in prison because of the wickedness of Felix who wanted to extort a bribe out of Paul. Paul, who had no money, he had already given everything up, but Paul had friends. Billy Graham may not be rich, but he's got friends. And if they want Billy Graham out of prison, well, his friends can fork over a little dough because, after all, what do you think this office is all about anyway? That's the way Felix was treating him. But look how Paul used his time. It's amazing. What we want to notice in this third point is that when you defend the faith, God will redeem your time. We feel like we're being sidetracked, verses 22 and 23. A, we feel like we are sidetracked. But Felix put them off. He not only put the Jews off, he put Paul off. Now, you've got to think about this politically. Paul was a Roman citizen. Felix knew, even in all of his wickedness, that Paul hadn't done anything wrong. He knew, he could tell this was all a Jewish religious controversy and it was religious mob scene violence. And even he could see that. And Paul was a Roman citizen. Felix would have been happy to hang him on a cross, but he was a Roman citizen and Felix would get in trouble for it. So he was kind of trapped. So what are we going to do? Well, we'll just say that we'll wait for Lysias to come up here and give an answer. But you notice it, <clears throat> that wasn't going to happen. This was all a ruse just to get these parties separated so that Felix could have peace in the land he was ruling. So we'll just keep Paul in custody up here in Caesarea by the sea, 65 miles from Jerusalem. Y'all just going back to Jerusalem. That was his tactic, just delay. And justice delayed is justice denied, and that's exactly what Felix did to Paul. And meanwhile, let's look for a bribe. But notice what was happening. That we feel like we're being sidetracked, but B, verses 24, 25, God is using us. 
Felix comes back and says, Paul, I heard you say something about the resurrection of the dead for both the just and the unjust. I'm not going to say which one of those I am, but I'd be like to know more about this. And Paul, in the face of this man who had an unrighteous marriage to one of God's people, the Jews, and she had unrighteously divorced her husband and married this guy who had been married three times and now married to her unjustly and who was slaughtering God's people everywhere. And he's talking to him about the judgment of God. Talk about boldness. And Felix wants more of it. Now, it's because, of course, he's looking for a bribe, but he, look what he's taking to get a bribe. Paul's preaching at him time after time about the judgment of God. If you think the gospel is just a sweet little message, we're supposed to come along everybody and just make them feel good and draw them into church so that eventually they'll be saved. Paul had a different strategy. Let's get right down to the nub of the issue, sir. We've got a big problem. And God has graciously solved it in the Messiah. And if we don't accept His solution, we're going to face the ultimate solution ourselves. Facing Him in the judgment. I plead with you to come to Christ. He talked to him about faith in Christ. Felix wanted to hear more. I'm telling you, even the most wicked person will listen to you if they know that you come to them sincerely. Lastly, regardless of the intensity and duration of the injustices, he often came to him, sent for him, and conversed with him. Often, over two years. It was intense. It was regular. The injustice continued. But Paul used the time well. And I just close with this. And I really do. (laughs) Think about these two years. Paul was a very busy man. Paul did not have much time to stop down, stop and talk to anybody about any of his experiences. How do you think we got the book of Acts? Let me tell you how we got it. Because God in His gracious providence used the injustices of wicked men to put Paul under arrest with some freedom so that he could talk to brothers. And let me tell you who one of these brothers was. Scholars tell us one of the brothers was Luke. Where do you think Luke debriefed Paul to write the book of Acts so that we would have the Word of God? It was there in Caesarea. Do you think Paul understood this completely at the time? Of course he didn't understand it. Here's what Paul understood. God's gracious. God loves his people. God will defend our lives and he will enable our minds and he will use our time even when we believe we've been sidetracked. And that's how we got the book of Acts, through the injustices of Felix. So as you go your way, gentlemen, you have to go with one thing in your mind. There's a God in control of the universe who happens to be your father and he's looking out for you and he's called you to one thing. Testify to the gospel, the good news of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and you just leave everything else with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great act of the Holy Spirit to defend and use one of your servants during a very difficult moment in his life. Please enable us to see now with 2020 vision, by the help of your word and spirit, that we too are being guarded and protected and enabled and used even when we can't understand it. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.